If Jesus came back and saw what's going on in his name, it never stopped blowing up. Oh, you bet. You bet. Jesus and God and the Virgin Mary and their entire chorus would be vomiting if they could see the charlatans in the temples today. And they can if they have cable. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM KSOW Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 93FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii, on 88.5FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1FM in Columbus. In Minneapolis-St. Paul, on AM 950KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and blanketing the globe five days a week on Radio Sputnik. Usually our show is hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Today, you have me, Angie Coiro. And oh, what I saw on TV this past weekend was boggling, amazing, frustrating, evil, appalling, and completely legal and untouchable because it's done in the guise of religion. Here's the deal. My sweetie and I, we record almost everything on the TiVo. We skip the commercial breaks. For some reason, we were letting it roll on Saturday. We did this double take. We stopped everything we were doing on the side and watched this commercial. And then we looked at each other and said, this can't be legal. Is this legal? We're going to share the miracle spring water with you. And I'm going to tell you how a Russian pastor found the miracle spring water, not on his own, but through divine leading and direction. And God miraculously spared, prospered, delivered him. And God wants to do the same for you as you use the miracle spring water. Miracle water. Miracle water to increase your wealth, erase your debt, let the blind see, let the lame walk. How pathetic. And I noticed the number of minorities in the ad, most of the testimonials came from black people. We should be so lucky to have anywhere near that percentage of non-white faces in actual programming. Now hang on to that thought because I'm coming back to this. How could this miracle man with his miracle water get away with it? How could he go on television and promise to wipe away your debt with a sprinkle of blessed H2O? People are seeing debts canceled, new houses, new cars, healings of the most exotic ailments, debts, lumps disappearing, blind eyes open, crippled people are walking. It is absolutely amazing. This same guy has been pulling this same crap since the 1980s. So I spent some time looking into this. It's going to take a while. I want you to hear the story because this is important. And it involves people that, for whatever reason, America can rarely bring itself to care about. 
It turns out our Constitution and its interpretations over the years and the laws that have solidified on its principles have made Peter Popoff all but untouchable. An untouchable multimillionaire targeting the old, the vulnerable, and the less advantaged people to give him their last dime and then go home to his $7 million home and not pay a dime in taxes. In that small way, it's not just Peter Popoff, lifetime swindler taking their savings. Because of his protections, in a small way, it's you and me. We are complicit if we let this keep happening. Here's the story. Let's go back to the 1980s. Peter Popoff, self-proclaimed vessel of God, was pulling in $4 million a year with this same shtick, minus the water. How long? You had four brain tumors? I had four brain surgeries, and the proof is right here in the back of my head. I stayed in the hospital for eight When I came home two weeks later, my husband was killed. His family wrote the military and told the military I was dead, took all my money. I just got a warrants letter for $390,000. Live in large venues with dramatic lighting, a screaming crowd, aside from the electricity... Not a lot had changed since the days of the traveling, godly pickpockets. They used to set up a tent outside the city limits. They fleeced the sheep, and then they packed up and scrammed a step ahead of the sheriff. And what the 1980s had, that those golden olden days did not, was the amazing Randy. A magician and an evangelist in his own way. Between handling special effects for the Alice Cooper Band on tour and other entertainment, Randy was getting more and more disgusted with sloppy American thinking and the soulless fakes who capitalized on it. Peter Popoff was coming to San Francisco with his amazing godly act of reading minds and curing the sick. Wow, how did he do that? I see there's a lot of confusion in your home. God's going to bring peace into your home life. Amen. He's going to shake some of these loved ones that have caused you distress. Woo! Oh, oh, glory to God. Hallelujah. How did he walk up to a complete stranger, recite her address where the angels were at that moment hanging over the house, lay hands on her head, recite gibberish, Whack her on the forehead and cure her of every ill. And how did people end up with results like these? And Sister Daphne, you've been writing Pastor Papa for how long? Uh, Ever since like 2001, 2002, and he sent me the miracle spring water and he said that I would get a big lump sum of money and I did. How much was that lump sum of money? $25,000. Is that an amount you can get excited about? Yes. The amazing Randy had more than a suspicion. It had nothing to do with any celestial gifts. So with Popoff headed to San Francisco, Randy worked with experts to set up a radio signal trap in the city's civic auditorium. Let's let him take up the story from there. The radio scanner we brought to the hall picked up a decidedly worldly source. 
Hello, Petey. Can you hear me? If you can't, you're in trouble. Popoff was being prompted by his wife through a wireless earpiece. John? Do you leave Johnson? She'd gotten her information from prayer cards filled out by the faithful before the show began. She wants to get rid of the walker. You want to get rid of this walker, sister? Oh, glory. How long have you been walking on that walker? About three years. Three years. She lives at 1627 10th Street. 1627 10th Street? Is that right? That's right. She has arthritis all over. Burning this arthritis right out of your body. Take a few steps just to make the devil mad. Hallelujah. That's it. Just move around a little bit. There she goes. Just walk with me. Oh, glory to God. She's not going to need that walker anymore. God's just putting new strength, new health, burning that arthritis out of her body. Just how fake were the dazzling duo of Peter and Liz? Randy had a man in women's clothing in the audience. Liz eventually caught on, and she screamed in Peter's ear to get away from the guy. But it was too late. Peter Popoff had just cured the man's uterine cancer. Bad enough, but as reported in Science and the Paranormal, it got much, much worse. Liz and her cohorts giggled in his ear about a woman on the scene with lumps in her breast. A guy with disfiguring testicular cancer? <laughs> that was even funnier. This was an expose of truly vile people. The amazing Randy gathered up these tapes and took the whole story on the Johnny Carson show. Johnny Carson was the Jimmy Fallon of his day. This was big. By 1987, fully exposed, Peter Popoff was bankrupt. So what the hell is he doing on TV now? In multiple countries, with no apparent way to stop him, why is he making more money now than ever before? We have to look to history on this one, way back before the 80s, to a 1944 SCOTUS case, U.S. versus Ballard. And this strings into today with a complacent IRS a powerless FCC, and a Federal Trade Commission that is hands-off all the way. One guy and his organization versus three ostensible powerhouses of the U.S. government. And he chucks them under the chin on the way to his bottomless ATM. You know who's not very optimistic about this mess? Unfortunately, it sounds like the amazing Randy is more than a bit discouraged. Years after the expose, he addressed a consortium in Spain with this. You would think that Peter Popoff would be put out of business entirely. That would be the end of his career as a fraud. But no, that's not true. He's still in business all these years afterwards. Johnny Carson uh, died some years ago, and he used to call me regularly after his retirement and say, but I see that Peter Popoff is still in business. And I said, yes, John, because these are the unsinkable rubber ducks. You push them down, they come back up again, always. These are the people that you will never defeat because other people will believe them. The public will believe them because they don't know any better. 
1998, Peter Popov, still alive and well and doing the same thing, made $1 million more than the year when we exposed him on that show. And that year, he made $11 million. And he is doing better than he did before. There is nowhere to teach people. But maybe all is not lost. And the answer may appear in the judgment from that 1944 Supreme Court case. Possible solutions. Coming right up on the Bradcast. I'm Angie Quero, sitting in for Brad and Desi. Hey, it's Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. And while the Bradcast and Bradblog.com fight for election integrity all year around like no other media outlet in the nation, we need your support to keep doing so now more than ever. Please stop by Bradblog.com donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going or even just a one-time only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions that those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds to stop by bradblog.com donate right now. And thanks. I'm going to tell everyone watching about the Revelation stones that I brought back from Israel. The most amazing miracles are about to take place in your life as you use the Revelation stones. I'm also going to tell you about the miracle spring water. You're going to hear many, many testimonies. The blind shall see, the cancer will go away, and God will personally transfer money to your bank account and rip up your debt sheets. The promises of Peter Popoff, man of God, and why he's been getting away with it for three decades. Part of the deal is he's smart. Since his late 90s comeback, he has targeted minority communities. Listen to the voices from one of his pitches back to back. And about 10 minutes after I read that letter, somebody knocked on the door with a check for $8,000. And about five weeks ago, the Lord blessed me with $6,300 that was handed to me. Sure enough, I got a check in the mail. It was exactly $7,000. She said, your debt is paid in full. I started shouting on the front. That check came in the mail for $1,699. Now, if you could see the video from this, you would notice. No white people. One woman appears to be Hispanic. Everyone else, black. Black and Hispanic Americans are more likely to be religious than are white Americans. And their churches preach miracles and about giving yourself over to God. They are vulnerable to his rhetoric. Peter Popoff knows how to speak to these people. And these are people that we've seen again and again 
it's hard to make the greater populace care about. That woman we heard who could suddenly walk? Well, he just hit a triple with her, didn't he? She's old. She's sick. She's black. It's hard to count less in this society. Another part of Popov's invincibility is coded in a legal case from 1944, U.S. v. Ballard. A quick overview here, and I want you to listen specifically to the Chief Justice's dissenting opinion. Ballard was a guy, Guy Ballard, in fact. Now, he founded his own religion, which exists in one way or another today. It was called the I Am Activity. It involved his consultations with repeatedly reincarnated ascended masters. Now, this all came about after he chatted up a saint while he was hiking on Mount Shasta, you know, the way you do. When Guy died, his wife and his kid kept up the I Am religion. Now, not unlike our friend Peter Popoff, they didn't charge anyone to come hear the good news. Nope, it was all donations, all willingly given. But when it started involving the U.S. mail, the government bit down. They charged the wife and son with fraud. The judge in the initial case told the jury not to worry about whether the religion that these two were peddling was true or false. Instead, he told the jury to focus on whether the Ballards believed what they were selling. And they were convicted. But it turns out the Ninth Circuit didn't like how the judge had limited that scope to what they did or didn't believe. That took it all the way to the Supreme Court. And that's where we get the decision that lets people like Peter Popoff get away with scams. William O. Douglas wrote for the majority, The religious views espoused by respondents might seem incredible, if not preposterous, to most people. But if those doctrines are subject to trial before a jury charged with finding their truth or falsity, then the same can be done with the religious beliefs of any sect. When the triers of fact undertake that task, they enter a forbidden domain. In short, the court should not be sticking its nose into religion. Remember, part of our founding principles as a country is in the Establishment Clause. It's part of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And okay, I can see how the Establishment Clause and the related concept of separation of church and state gave support to the court majority. But hang on. Here's what Chief Justice Harlan Stone wrote. I am not prepared to say that the constitutional guarantee of freedom affords immunity from criminal prosecution for the fraudulent procurement of money by false statements as to one's religious experiences, more than it renders polygamy or libel immune from criminal prosecution. I cannot say that freedom of thought and worship includes freedom to procure money by making knowingly false statements about one's religious experiences. What if, with new knowledge, with plenty of digital evidence that the king not only has no clothes, but is taking everyone else's? What if that line of thought, written by a chief justice no less, could be incorporated into present law? 
It's not like he didn't know what he was talking about. He was a respected justice. But wouldn't there have to be evidence that Popoff and his faithful sidekick, his wife Liz, yeah, his co-conspirator is still by his side in the infomercials, that they knowingly made false statements? Here you go. Enter Crystal Sanchez, who's written a book. It's online only. It's called The Real Truth Behind People United for Christ. Now, of course, I can't say that everything she charges in the book is proven. It's her personal narrative. So you can mentally insert as many allegedlies into the following story as you want. To me, and to writer Carrie Poppy of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, her words ring true. Crystal worked for Popoff's church as a donations processor. She got very quickly disillusioned with everything she saw. She confirmed what many others have reported. The scam only starts with the TV commercials. You sign up for that vial of miracle water, it's free. You get a blessed stone, it's free. And there the fun is just beginning. Personal letters start showing up in your mailbox. When you target people of lower income or advanced age, email means a lower haul and a digital footprint. Every one of these personal letters acknowledges your last communication and then tells you of God's desire for you to send more money. This goes on and on. Desperate people over time, in exchange for absolution tools and various plastic knickknacks, keep digging into their wallets. Oh, and that miracle water that starts the whole stream off? Crystal Sanchez saw it in its original incarnation. Water bottles from Costco. It's too much detail for me to go into online, but do look her book up, The Real Truth Behind People United for Christ. So here's where we stand. This guy is all over TV, most notably on the BET channel, on constant replay. Other countries have found ways to shut him down. As Poppy reported, his Canadian charity, quote, was shut down after an audit found suspicious payments and determined that Popoff was putting the public in danger by encouraging them to seek his healing for blindness, AIDS, and more instead of getting real medical treatment, end quote. Now, a group in the UK called Good Thinking, they're advocates of rational thought, worked with both Iceland and Britain to get the broadcast shut down there. Britain ruled that the infomercials violated truth in advertising laws. Now, wait a minute, don't we have those here? Don't you have to advertise truthfully here or get punished? This is the final piece of the puzzle. The impotence of the American federal government. Now, more than one factor here, but the guts of it is our protections of religion. I would posit our outdated protections of religion, even if it's clearly not religion, even if it's clearly a scam, even if it's bankrupting countless Americans, even if they're dying while they're waiting for their endless stream of checks to pop off and others like him to pay off in an impossible cure. Here's the standing of the three primary agencies. The FCC is the first to come to mind. This is happening on television. But the FCC primarily regulates broadcast. Now, like I said, Popoff is smart. 
his ads run mostly in the much more lawless, much less regulated Wild West of cable. So, count out the FCC. The IRS does have the power to research and punish alleged religious organizations that flout the word and the spirit, see what I did there, of the tax laws, that allow multi-building luxury compounds as parsonages and donations left completely alone. But years back, I interviewed a former tax official. He made it clear the IRS does not have the money, the staff, or really the priority to go after faux churches. The laws are on the books. They are utterly toothless. So down goes the FCC, down goes the IRS, and that leaves us with the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. Usually, this is where the buck stops with false advertising, but that is largely limited to sales. Someone selling a cure gets looked into. But Popoff isn't selling anything. The miracle water is free. The blessed stones are free. The redemption tools are free. And every bit of cash wrested from his hapless marks is a donation. No one's being forced. No one is buying anything. The FTC stands down. All this brings us back to the laws and the courts of America. Our Bill of Rights, our Constitution, and our legal traditions are living, breathing documents and practices. Every day they are weighed and analyzed and interpreted with new information, with new evolution of our society. Crystal Sanchez, Carrie Poppy, the Good Thinking Group, the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, the Amazing Randy, and so many others have documented this wall of lies and cheating and sheer huckstery. It is time to look again at the words of Chief Justice Harlan Stone in 1944 in the Ballard case. I am not prepared to say that the constitutional guarantee of freedom of religion affords immunity from criminal prosecution for the fraudulent procurement of money by false statements as to one's religious experiences. Fraudulent procurement of money. Crystal Sanchez from inside the church acknowledged that everyone there is in on what's happening. Everyone there knows that Popoff never sees the personalized letters going out because he never even sees the letters coming in. They are written to, interpreted by, shaped to, and responded to by a machine. Can we finally stop pretending that what Popoff does, what dozens like him do on small and large scales every day, has anything to do with intended godly practices? Can we stop playing dumb? Can we start caring about his dupes more than we care about him? Can we care about how he leaves them destitute? or dead. Even from a strictly budgetary point of view, can we look at his personal wealth, which is now estimated to be well north of $23 million, and say, 
we, the people, will not be his dupes any longer? One more time. Let's let Max von Sydow, in his role in Hannah and Her Sisters, lead the rallying cries. If Jesus came back and saw what's going on in his name, he'd never stop growing up. This is the Bradcast. I'm Angie Cuero in for Brad and Desi. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1987. That was the day that Rose Will Monroe, one of the women who came to be known as Rosie the Riveter, died in Clarksville, Indiana. She was 77 years old. Rose had gone to work in a factory making B-52 bombers in Ypsilanti, Michigan during World War II. She was one of thousands of women in the United States who entered the industrial workforce to support the war effort, while more and more men entered the armed forces. While Rose Will Monroe worked at the factory, the image of Rosie the Riveter was already becoming perhaps one of the most iconic symbols of U.S. labor. The nickname Rosie the Riveter was first used in a song in 1942. The song was inspired by another real-life Rosie. Rosalind P. Walter worked during the war building Corsair fighter planes. Along with the song, a popular poster showed Rosie with a red kerchief tied around her hair, sleeves rolled up, arm muscles flexed, showing the strength of women workers. We Can Do It wasn't blazed across the top of the poster. Then, an actor by the name of Walter Pigeon visited the Ypsilanti factory. He was helping to make a promotional film to support the war effort at home. When he found out there was a real Rosie who worked as a riveter in the plant, he recruited her for the film. The image of Rosie the Riveter lives on as a symbol of labor and women's empowerment. All the day long, whether rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory. Rosie, the Riveter, keeps a sharp lookout for sabotage. Sitting up there on the fuselage, that little friend can do more than a male can do. Rosie, the Riveter. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, Go to laborhistoryin2.com. You are listening to the Bradcast. I'm Angie Cuero, in for Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen. At some point, all the gods and goddesses willing, this election will be over. Oh, please. Oh, please let this end. But one thing will not change. Money in politics will keep being the most important battle political reformers face. Everything else fiscal inequality, racial injustice, women's equality would look entirely different if our candidates and congressional voices didn't have to spend so much time getting into and staying in Congress with the help of finances from interested parties. Derek Cressman visited me recently for my syndicated show, In Deep with Angie Cuero. He is the author of When Money Talks, The High Price of free speech and the selling of democracy. We talked about the real scope of the problem and his own history on the campaign trail. Derek ran for California Secretary of State in 2014. And before that, he was Common Cause's Vice President of State Operations in California. My guest, Derek Cressman, gets right down to business in the introduction to his new book, describing the landmark Citizens United Supreme Court ruling. He writes... Five men in black robes say it is unconstitutional to prevent the super-rich from drowning out the voices of everyone else. Those five men are wrong, and the rest of us must make it right. 
The problem is more than Citizens United. The most speech going to the most moneyed has a longer history than that. Derek Cressman, thank you for coming to Kepler's. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I want to talk about the distinction that you make that the whole concept of paid speech and whether it is appropriate within a democracy has to do with who's paying for it. That's right. You know, you can use money to disseminate speech. But I draw a line in the book between free speech, both it's free, meaning you, you can speak your conscience and not get thrown in jail for that, but also speech that is free to the speaker. So if you call into a radio show or write a letter to the editor, it doesn't cost you anything to do that. If you're a reporter for that newspaper, not only does it not cost you, but they pay you to mm -hmm. submit the story because those costs are borne by the listener who subscribes to the Washington Post or the New York Times or buys a book or, or a ticket to a movie. They're opting to pay for the speech. That's correct. On the other side of the line, we have paid speech, such as advertising, that the costs are borne by the speaker. And I think both of these have a role in our democracy, but we need to be very careful that paid speech doesn't overwhelm free speech, and particularly paid speech coming from a tiny group of people doesn't overwhelm even the paid speech uh, of the rest of us. And, and that's the situation that we've gotten ourselves into with the Citizens United ruling and a host of other rulings, as, as you alluded to. This is a topic that tends to be painted in broad strokes. Rich people shouldn't have the biggest say. It's not terribly nuanced. But one of the things you talk about with putting speech in the hands of the people who can afford to disseminate it is that people in different classes tend to view things differently. And what happens when money equals speech, the principles the country ends up being run on are not necessarily the views of the majority. You know, it's no surprise or even necessarily no problem that different segments of our society would have different viewpoints based on their backgrounds and experiences. The problem comes when we let a tiny group of extremely wealthy people express their point of view to a much greater extent than everyone else. Then we don't have a balanced public debate. We have a, a skewed public debate. And as a result, we have both political campaigns and public policy overwhelmingly reflect the, the views and the preferences of, of that tiny elite of people. And you put a quote from former Senator Paul Simon talking about if he gets home at the end of the night, take it from there, because I thought this was really illustrative. Yeah, you know, he, he tells a story saying, you know, look, if, if I get back to Chicago and, and it's 11 o'clock at night and, and I have 20 messages and I have time to return one phone call and I see one of those messages from someone who's given me $1,000, who do you think I'm going to call? And we've tended to talk about this problem of money in politics as one of corruption or bribery. And my point is it may be more helpful to think about whose voice gets heard by the member of Congress, who can arrange a meeting for their lobbyist with a member of Congress, and who can buy a TV ad to express their point of view and who can't and, and whose voices aren't being heard. You actually went out and got arrested. And that was a nice little lesson in what the appropriate boundaries on free speech are. So let's talk about your arrest. What were you up to? Sure. Well, I was joining an organization called 99 Rice, and they're actually planning a similar march and nonviolent protest coming up this spring. It's called Democracy Spring, and I'll be taking part in that as well. It's going to start in Philadelphia and wind up at the U.S. Capitol. But 
the incident I write about in the book was a march that started in Los Angeles, California, and um, uh, several dozen people walked the entire distance from Los Angeles to Sacramento. I was in the middle of a campaign for Secretary of State, so I, I joined the, the front end of that march and the tail end. And at the end, we had several hundred people wind up at the steps of the Capitol in Sacramento. And by 10.30 at night, there were 13 of us who were still there expressing our political speech. And we were informed by the Capitol Police that our permit to protest had expired, you know, as if there's an expiration date in the First Amendment. And it's, it's one of many examples I talk about in the book of how we actually limit the speech and the volume and the duration speech of regular people all the time. And yet then we have this double standard. For, for billionaires, we, we won't limit their money and how much speech they can purchase, but we have lots of limits on how long any of the rest of us can speak. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Citizens United and its reputation as the big smack in the face to the idea that everyone should have equal voice. But this is the latest in a series of rulings and a series of battles that kind of sealed the deal on this. You know, Citizens United was maybe the most offensive Supreme Court ruling on money in politics. I'm not sure from a policy point of view it's the worst, but I think it gained so much notoriety in part because of, of the process that the court used to arrive at its ruling, where it, it could have issued a very narrow ruling pertaining to this movie made by the organization Citizens United, and instead John Roberts told the plaintiffs, hey, you didn't ask for enough. Come back to me and re-argue this case and tell me to blow up the entire campaign finance rules. And that's just wildly inappropriate thing for a, a court to do, especially someone who professed to be, you know, into judicial modesty in his confirmation hearing. The real problem on this, the, the, there were subsequent rulings to that, such as the, the Speech Now case, which actually Judge Garland, who was just nominated by President Obama, was part of unanimously extending the logic of the Citizens United ruling. But the, the real problems go back 40 years. Well, um, let's, let's back up and just give us the nut of the case that Garland was involved with. That was a case called Speech Now versus Federal Election Commission, and it, it extended the logic of the Citizens United case, where, where in Citizens United, the Robert Court said, well, if a corporation or a labor union spends money independently of a political candidate, that isn't possibly a bribe to them, it isn't possibly corrupting, and therefore they can spend however many gazillion dollars they want to. And then um, a, another case was brought saying, well, what about an individual billionaire? I mean, if a corporation can do it and a labor union can do it, why can't a, a billionaire spend as much as they want in these so-called super PACs? And the appellate court unanimously said, oh, yeah, well, if Citizens United is correct, then it must be also the case that, that billionaires can spend independently. And, and that is what created the super PAC situation, not the Citizens United case. And we now have a judge that it was part of that unanimous decision nominated to the Supreme Court. We're talking right now to Derek Cressman here at Kepler's. His book is When Money Talks, The High Price of Free Speech and the Selling of Democracy. So what we have is this series of cases that you have X amount of money and you want to use it to express yourself. As long as you are not giving it directly to the candidate, you can operate through super PACs to do it. States and other jurisdictions have made efforts in the past to deal with that, and they keep getting smacked down. Talk about Albuquerque. 
Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I was just a couple of days ago, passed a law by ballot measure in the early 70s that said there's going to be a maximum amount that each candidate could spend so that there would be a level playing field and, and voters could hear from both sides or, or maybe multiple sides and then decide who they want to vote for. California passed a similar law in 1974, Proposition 9, that created the Political Reform Act and set mandatory limits on our campaign spending. And Congress passed a law like that in the wake of the Watergate scandals and set mandatory limits on how much congressional candidates could spend. Those laws were eviscerated by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1976 in uh, this, this ruling that was actually more damaging than Citizens United. It was called Buckley versus Vallejo, and fewer people have heard of it. Albuquerque, either they just didn't get the memo or they just didn't care. They decided they were going to keep enforcing their local campaign finance laws in defiance of the United States Supreme Court ruling in Buckley for a period of uh, more than 30 years. And we had excellent elections. Voter turnout was higher. Uh, you know, so it, it's uh, a data point of what elections could look like if we had a sane set of rules on money and politics. One of our guests here at Kepler's has a question about local politics. Could you comment, she asks, on the history of money in California politics? For example, the proposition system came about as a means of arresting control of the government from the robber barons. And then move on to Prop 49. There are a couple of things that are in that question. The citizen initiative process came about here in California as a result of Governor Hiram Johnson giving the people a tool to check and balance a corrupt legislature. Prop 49 was not actually a citizen initiative. It was placed on the ballot by the legislature. So it was actually written by State Senator Ted Lieu, who's now a member of Congress. I certainly supplied him some materials to base that writing on, including similar measures that I'd helped draft in Montana and Colorado. But the idea with a voter instruction is not to make a law, but to instruct our members of Congress to pass a law, or in this case, to pass a constitutional amendment that would overturn the Citizens United process. This is important because at the federal level, we, we don't have the initiative process. There's no way that we can just amend our U.S. Constitution through voters acting directly. Instead, we need Congress to act and draft that amendment, and, and that's a difficult proposition. So I researched this idea of voter instructions going back actually to the, the founding period of our country, and the colonists used this tool where they would instruct or charge their elected representatives to take specific action and then hold them accountable to that. And we've actually passed many constitutional amendments in, in our past through that process. And that's what Prop 49 was about in California, was instructing the California delegation to support a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. The other thing I'd never heard anywhere else is the idea that it is not the sole discretion of the Supreme Court to interpret the laws of America. You know, the legislature passes a law, the president signs the law, the court interprets the law. Yes. In our modern period, we've come to believe that the court should be the only entity that interprets the constitutionality of a law. But that was not how the framers saw it. And in fact, the, the framers were not even unanimous on whether or not the court should play a role at all in interpreting the constitutionality of a law. But they expected it would be 
all three branches of government that would play a role in enforcing the Constitution and interpreting the Constitution. And so, yes, certainly the Supreme Court could issue an opinion, but ultimately it was also the responsibility of the executive branch to consider the constitutionality of that law and certainly to take the Supreme Court's opinion into account, but not to offer complete deference and, and abdication of their constitutional duties as well. Sitting here next to me is Derek Crestman. He is the author of When Money Talks, The High Price of Free Speech and the Selling of Democracy. Grateful to one of our guests here for bringing up the name of one of the biggest players. We've established where the problem lies, but some of the players in this game have a very low profile and a very high impact. And our guest asks, do you have any suggestions about how each of us can best combat organizations like ALEC? Give us the thumbnail sketch for those who don't know who this shadowy player is. Sure. ALEC uh, is an, an acronym that stands for the American Legislative Exchange Council, and it's basically an organization that brings together corporate lobbyists and corporate CEOs, some ideological members of the far right, such as you know folks with the NRA, and uh, state legislators. And, and they hold conferences uh, where they wine and dine state legislators and have a chance to give them briefings on issues that they're concerned about. And then they actually draft what they call model bills to give those state legislators to, to bring back to their states and introduce into state legislatures. And I think the most important thing is to shine a light on this process because it, it's much lower profile than what happens in Congress. Um, you know, many people just don't follow what's happening in state legislatures. And yet with Congress completely gridlocked and not doing anything, actually, most of the action is in the states right now. And, you know, if people knew that uh, a bill that was introduced by a particular legislature was literally written by a corporate lobbyist, they might view both that bill and that legislator quite differently. So they there's an organization called Alec Exposed, and people can Google that and go to their website and actually look at some of these model bills and then look at bills that are moving in your legislature and compare them and, and um, certainly ask your state legislator if they attend these Alec events um, is one way of just trying to uncover uh, what's going on here. More fundamentally, I think in the long term, we have to um, go after the long-term incentives that um, – cause a state legislator to want to go and, and curry favor to those corporate lobbyists. And, and they're doing it because it's a way to advance their careers, because when they introduce ALEC bills, they get rewarded through campaign contributions that can uh, further their careers. Maybe they want to move from the House to the Senate or run for Congress someday. And they're, they're building relationships with corporate donors that can help them in the future. And so the long-term solution, I believe, is to reduce the role of, of corporate money and, and big money in determining who can run for office and who wins elections. And if you get to that point, then then there's no incentive for state legislators to, to go to these ALEC conventions. Another guest question, to what extent can a state require full disclosure of the true source of funds for political speech? One of the issues you have with that is in some states or jurisdictions, they say, well, you have to put at the bottom of the flyer, who paid for this? Well, at the bottom of the flyer, it says, you know, this is paid for by the good guys. And that means nothing to anyone. Right. So how far can a state go in saying you need to say who you are, what your affiliation is, what your desire is? 
Well, it, in the Citizens United ruling, the Supreme Court did say that, that Congress and the states can require disclosure of funds that are used certainly to elect a candidate or to promote a ballot measure. And, and actually here in California and other states are working on this as well. We have the Disclose Act that would require disclaimers at the bottom of ads to, to not just say paid for by Americans and who love apple pie, <laughs> you know, but li list the top three donors to that. And, and so far, the Supreme Court ha has upheld that type of approach. Now, there, there are two challenges. One is the Supreme Court has proven willing to flip-flop and change its mind. So just because they've said it's okay now doesn't mean they couldn't backtrack on this in five or ten years. And, and we've seen 40 years of backtracking on this issue. And the other issue is both billionaires and corporations are becoming pretty smart at laundering their money through what's called a 501c4 organization, which doesn't specifically only advocate for a candidate or a ballot measure. It does lots of things. And by saying they do lots of things, like Carl Rhodes Crossroads uh, GPS organization is, is one example of this, they then say they don't have to disclose their donors. So it, there are some challenges there, but there's a lot that can and should be done. And it, it is absolutely appalling that, that the U.S. Congress won't even take those steps to disclose what we can be disclosing. We talked about how Albuquerque tried to defy the Supreme Court in, in dealing with funding speech. What about when a state tries to regulate what needs to be disclosed? How much wiggle room do they have if the Supreme Court has put out some ruling? States do have some individual power. Yes, and the only way to answer that question is to try. And in particular, now that we have a new Supreme Court, a 4-4 court, and maybe someday a 5-4 court, a state legislature and governor can make their own interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, pass a new campaign finance law, either on the disclosure end of things or on limiting the amount of money in politics. And that creates a new test case to go back up to the Supreme Court. And that might very well be defying previous court precedents. So you could have a state that would pass a law that, that flew in the face of the Citizens United ruling, and that would create a, a new case that the court um, would have to rule on. And, and that's one way to go about reversing past court decisions, is to create new circumstances that, that test the boundaries of those decisions and, and see if you can get the court to move. One of the most controversial things in the book for me was discovering that the American Civil Liberties Union does not favor going after Citizens United per se, going after paid speech per se. I am <laughs> I'm the typical card-carrying ACLU supporter. So I looked up what their problem was with this. I found it a little bit on the persuasive side. This is right off their website. Some argue campaign finance laws can be surgically drafted to protect legitimate political speech while restricting speech that leads to undue influence by the wealthy. Experience over the last 40 years has taught us money always finds an outlet, and the endless search for loopholes simply creates the next target for a new regulation. It also contributes to cynicism about our political process. And the last comment, it's useful to remember the mixture of money and politics predates Citizens United and would not disappear even if it were overruled. The 2008 presidential campaign, which took place before that ruling, was the most expensive in U.S. history. The case I hear there is that if we start working against Citizens United through regulation, through court action, et cetera, we're creating a game of whack-a-mole. Okay, great. We, we turn over Citizens United. It's cash. They can afford it. They're just going to go do this over here instead. Take that on for me. 
Well, um, you, you know, we have some examples such as Albuquerque that has shown that that's not the case. Um, but the parts of that statement are correct, that the problem was huge before Citizens United. And, you know, that this argument that people will always look for loopholes is true and can be said basically of any law, right? So if you pass a tax, people look for loopholes around that tax. And you can pass a law prohibiting murder and people will look for loopholes and evade <laughs> that law. So that that's not a reason never to have any laws, but people often make this analogy that money in politics is like water running downhill, and, and you can't stop water from running downhill. And, and while that's true, you can create uh, dams and levees that move water into places that are helpful and, and keep it out of places that are harmful. So, you know, I, I live in Sacramento, California, the second most uh, flood-prone city after New Orleans in America, and I live about a mile from a levee, and I'm glad it's there, all right? A and we can build levees on uh, big money in politics and channel it in directions that are more harmful or more helpful. And the ACLU has not only not been supportive of building those levies, they've been actively involved in, in blowing them up through filing court cases aimed at punching holes in our campaign finance rules and, and creating those loopholes that they're complaining about. So uh, I think it's a little disingenuous of them to say, well, yeah, there'll always be loopholes and then we're going to be leading the charge to create more of them. Talking to Derek Christman about his book, When Money Talks, The High Price of Free Speech and the Selling of Democracy. All right, let's talk solutions. Let's talk about getting the voice of the average voter represented. And you were talking about voter instructions. What's a voter instruction? How do you get it out there? And what difference does it make? Well, even before we get to voter instructions, you know, that the solutions to the problem of money in politics would be to limit the amount of money that anyone, you know, George Soros or Charles or David Koch or, or you or I could give to influence a particular political campaign, whether that be directly to the candidate itself or to some outside group, and to set mandatory limits on the amount of money that each campaign could spend, and, and including limits on the amount of personal wealth that any candidate could use, whether that be Meg Whitman or Donald Trump or uh, Bill Bloomfield. Now, we can't do that because of the Supreme Court keeps striking down those laws. So one of the ways to address that would be to pass a constitutional amendment that would overturn those Supreme Court rulings and allow us to then place those sensible rules that we've been talking about. The idea of voter instructions is a tool to prod a Congress to actually take that step and propose a constitutional amendment, as well as to state legislatures to then ratify that amendment. And it's a tool that we used, for example, in passing the 17th Amendment that gave us the right to vote for U.S. Senator. We used to appoint U.S. Senators through state legislatures, and, and that process had become incredibly corrupt, where you had the robber barons of the time literally bribing state legislatures to buy a seat in the U.S. Senate. And the House of Representatives thought this was terrible, as did the entire country, and they kept proposing a constitutional amendment to let people directly vote for U.S. Senate. And, and to no surprise, the U.S. Senate kept killing that because they were terrified of running for office, much in the way that many of our current politicians are, are terrified of running without all this big money to back mm -hmm. them up. So uh, the logjam got broken by voter instruction questions and, and actually started here in California in 1892. Our legislature placed a question on the ballot asking Californians, you know, do you think U.S. senators should be directly elected? And 90% of Californians said, yeah, we think that'd be great. And then Oregon and several other states took it further and said, do you want to instruct your U.S. senator to vote 
for a constitutional amendment for direct election, and more significantly, do you want to instruct your state legislature to appoint to the U.S. Senate whoever wins this non-binding straw poll of candidates here on the ballot? And so you saw people running for the U.S. Senate by putting their name on that list of candidates, and you saw the Oregon legislature following those instructions and appointing to the U.S. Senate who won that non-binding straw poll. And as that caught on, more and more U.S. senators were, in fact, directly elected, and they then were willing to support the 17th Amendment. So it's a Amendment. progression. You start yes. here with the goal of ending here. Yeah. It's a tool that that we've forgotten about. And that's one of the projects of the book is to revive this tool that was used very widely during the colonial period and the period of our constitutional founders and has since fallen into disuse. And we're in such a, a crisis with money and politics that I think we need to start looking back to our history and, and, and figuring out what are the tools that we can use to get us out of this mess. What about the idea that with an open seat now on the Supreme Court, if we exert enough pressure for who gets to be on there, problem solved? Well, that, that's another way of going at it. And, and I'm in favor of, a, you know, sort of an all of the above approach. So I, I think it's appropriate that you have presidential candidates running out there saying, hey, if I'm the next president, I'll only nominate someone to the court that would overturn Citizens United. I think it's appropriate that President Obama has named a nominee to the court. But, you know, that that nominee actually highlights some of the potential downsides of, of this approach. We don't know where uh, this nominee stands on the question of Citizens United. We do know, you know, he's sort of the consummate Washington, D.C. insider and liked by all the politicians on both sides. And we know he was part of that unanimous ruling that we talked about before that extended the logic of Citizens United from corporations and labor unions to also take the limits off of billionaires. Derek Cresson's book is When Money Talks, The High Price of Free Speech and the Selling of Democracy. It's an instruction manual to restore fair elections. And that is a wrap on the broadcast for today. Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen have not deserted you. They will be back tomorrow. My thanks to them for letting me keep the chair warm and the mic hot. I'm Angie Corlew.
Hi, it's Bill Press, host of The Bill Press Show, where I talk politics and news of the day for three hours a day, five days a week. And now you can hear my show and all your favorite shows on one of the biggest platforms on the mobile Internet, the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn, where you can listen at home, at the gym, in the car, anywhere. You can take your mobile app. We'll be there. That's The Bill Press Show on the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Hi, I'm Tom Harmon, host of the Tom Harmon Program. Three hours a day, five days a week, we dissect the top issues of the day with sharp debates and some of the best callers in radio. And now you can check out the Tom Harmon Program on the Progressive Voices channel, available on one of the biggest mobile platforms in the world, TuneIn. Just look for the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn and stay connected at home, in the car, and anywhere you go. That's the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn.com and TuneIn mobile apps for the Tom Harmon Program.